This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 144 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Billy Sheehan from the Winery Dogs, I want to remind you about everything you can find at MistressCarrie.com. Not only can you find every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, but you can also find every episode of my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. You can also check out my bio and my blog. You can send me a message right here in the studio by clicking the message the studio button. The concert calendar is expanded to show all the rock shows coming to New England. And you can shop in the online Mistress Carrie store that's filled with t-shirts and hoodies, beanies and clear plastic concert approved bags, and a ton of stuff to outfit your war room, like pint and shot glasses, coasters, and a seven-in-one bartender tool. And there's always new stuff popping up in the store. Find all that and more at mistresscarry.com. My guest this week is legendary bass player Billy Sheehan from the Winery Dogs, who first appeared on the podcast on a bonus episode back on August 4th, 2021. Well, the Winery Dogs are out on the road in support of their latest album, Three, and I caught back up with Billy to talk about songwriting and how much he loves touring in a bus. We talked about singing and some of his questionable 80s fashion, We talked about the new generation of rock fans that he sees at the show and what it's like to be a musician and have your instrument stolen. We also talked about his man cave, his pet cats, and at the time of the interview, what he could tell me about the Mr. Big reunion. Obviously, a few things have changed since we talked. So allow me to reintroduce you to Billy Sheehan from the Winery Dogs. Mr. Billy Sheehan, good morning. Hello, Mistress Carrie. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to see you again. I, I met you last year at the podcast convention in Nashville. I remember. And now you're out on the yes. road with the Rhinery Dogs. Where are you right now? I'm in the back lounge of our tour bus. Uh, it's a very nice uh, spot. We're traveling uh, 
We're traveling to uh, our first show on this tour in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh. And uh, we do four in a row, two days off, then New York City, and then more, more, more. And there are many, many, many more dates to be announced. All of the Western U.S. has not been announced yet. They're still putting all that together, booking a lot of places. So uh, it's going to be a busy year, I'm happy to say. Usually when I talk to musicians, the first thing I ask them is, do you know where you are? And judging by how fast you're going down the road right now, you probably don't. I do not. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, now that we have cell phones, sometimes we'll click on the maps on cell phones just to see where the heck the bus is. Because we're usually sleeping in the bunk or, you know, we're traveling tonight so we can't see it. But it's it's a great bus, great adventure. I'm out with Richie and Mike, and uh, we're all supremely excited to be a on tour again it's fantastic you've been doing this a long time how do you find bus travel still does sleeping on the bus still bring difficulty or have you gotten so used to it by now i sleep oh the bus is amazing i think it was stephen stills that recorded the sound of the bus while it was driving so when he got home off tour he could play it and help him fall asleep so i slept like a baby last night for the first time in a while and it's super comfortable I could do a bus tour forever. Uh, one one flight, though, and I'm out. <laughs> Flying is just awful, as everyone probably realizes these days. But bus tours are amazing. European bus tours are so great. The double-decker bus and a little cappuccino cafe lounge up front. Uh, we use German buses a lot in uh, Europe, and they're clean and righteous. Uh, leather and comfort everywhere. Drivers are right on time. Uh, bus tours are the greatest. It's so much fun. You just get out of the gig, get on there, uh, and go to the next show. It's uh, We're very, very lucky. This is an amazing. I, I posted a uh, picture of this bus, an amazing bus, and it's over, uh, I think it's like thir- maybe 1,300 comments and about 20,000 likes. <laughs> People are so excited about seeing the bus. So. It's, it's, a, it's a great experience. Do you have a hard time sleeping when you're not in the bus like Stephen Stills does? No, I'm a pretty good sleeper. I could lay down on any any surface and go out. Because from touring so much, you got to learn how to take a nap once in a while. Because you only get, well, you got 30 minutes here. And you, we had no sleep at all. So I can, I can conk out and go hard, completely unconscious sleep. And then wake up totally there without any uh, grogginess. So uh, I'm very lucky. I know a lot of people can't sleep easy, and it's agonizing, but I'm lucky. I, I sleep I sleep good. My grandmother used to say when we were kids that if you could fall asleep like that, you had a clean conscience. Oh, man. I, I don't know about that, but maybe that's true. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things about, about being on a, a tour on a bus, especially a lot of touring in a year like you guys are going to do, is that um, you always get those kind of late night truck stop stops, the adventures in the middle of nowhere. When that happens, do you still, after all these years of touring, go and check out the truck stops? And what kind of weird things is Billy Sheehan buying in the truck stops at 3 a.m.? Oh, yeah, uh, we always do. It's a little bit of Americana, and every region has some different things. So the oddball things that, Truckers bolt onto their trucks or strange-looking bumper stickers saying God knows what. Uh, yeah, I'll always check it out. It's really, really wonderful. Truck drivers, of course, without them, we'd all starve to death in about a day. Uh, so uh, I have great respect for those guys. 
And uh, traveling around the country like this is, is really great. You put your finger, I'm sorry, put your thumb on the pulse of what's going on in, in, in America with people. Same as at a show afterwards, I'll always come out, say hi to people and talk and hang out. It's, uh, it's wonderful to do. I, I'm lucky to have a lot of friends around the world I can do that with. Uh, but uh, meeting people and seeing the country, that's a beautiful thing. I really do enjoy it. You guys are going to spend pretty much all year out on the road in support of your new album, Three, that just came out. And now that you're out on the road for the year, do you guys write new music while you're on the road? Or do you guys wait until you get off tour and go into a studio to work on song ideas? Well, every day is a pretty full day. There's almost no time at all. Uh, I, I I always tell people, hey, some say I want to come down and say hi. After show, oh, you can't go before show and show. It's so busy, you there's not enough time for anything. Once in a while, we get a little thing, and I've got my iPhone here that I'm speaking with you on now, and just put it on selfie video, face it to yourself, and with my bass or with a guitar, I'll sit down and croak out some vocals and a little song idea, save them all. I got thousands of those. So those may eventually become songs later on when we get down to real songwriting. But uh, and, and I'll always sit around as I'm playing bass to come up with some new lick or new idea. I'll always videotape it. So, there. so my, uh, I don't have much memory left on my phone as a result. <laughs> it is amazing how much memory they've been able to cram into those phones, though, right? My boy. I think it was a quote that you said, actually, about the makeup of Winery Dogs and that, you know, when, when you're a band of four or five members, sometimes you know, somebody can hide or you can function when a member is down. But when you're a three-piece, everyone has so much heavy lifting that you can't function without all three of you there. Was it you that said that? Uh, uh, no, but that, but I agree with that. It's very true. You can't, uh, you know, we always got to be, all of us at the top of our game, that I'm playing bass and singing and also, I play this instrument with my feet, which is like a little keyboard that you play with your foot. They're called bass bass pedals, but I can program it to play piano parts or whatever. So I can. So I actually am playing with my feet as well as the bass and singing. It gets a little complicated, like you know, you bat your head and, and rub your stomach at the same time. But uh, we all do. We all go the extra mile and uh, performance. Uh, Mike Portnoy is legendary for his uh, live performance, and Richie. It's just killing it. His voice is so great. So we all have to push extra. But I like that. I like uh, I like really hitting it hard. I, I like coming off the stage soaking wet and totally spent. Uh, get take a shower, get on the bus, and repeat. That's 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 a uh, that's heaven for me. <laughs> when you and I sat down and talked last time, um, you kind of explained the bass's role in the song and and in the performance. But I wanted to talk to you about you kind of being the intermediary between these two legendary musicians that you're talking about. When it comes to the rhythm section of the band, the bass player and the drummer, they're the backbone of everything. But you're the backbone with Mike Portnoy, who is arguably one of the greatest rock and roll drummers ever. Can you talk about you two and your playing style and your onstage give and take oh, well there's an esp that happens between bass and drums uh where michael do a move and i will do that exact same move never having discussed it never planning it 
we'd never done it before and we may never do it since. It's an automatic little thing that happens. And I watch drummers really closely. I'm all about the drums. Drums give us time. Bass gives time a pitch. And from that pitch, you build your chords and melodies. So bass is the glue between time, rhythm, and melody, uh, making those two things work together. Over the pandemic, I recorded over 600 songs for clients around the world. And we get a song with no bass on it. We think, man, what? I look at my engineer. Well, I'm not sure what we're going to do with this. They put up, get a proper bass line going in there. Yeah, it makes sense now. It really comes together. Not, I mean, not because it's my playing, but just to hear a bass added to a song that doesn't have it, it really is a, a, an amazing change in the way that song uh, affects you and the way you hear it. So uh, Mike is truly a great player, but he's also overall a great musician. So he understands pitch and notes and harmonies and things like that. And that is a really extra gift that Mike has. It's a super asset in any band he plays. You know, he'll know, you know, if you're going to a particular key, no, 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 that's the wrong key. Well, where should I go? And uh, he'll sing it if he can't name it. And oh, he's right. So after a while, learning songs is some of the bands I play with with Mike. And somebody would have an argument. No, the chorus is uh, two bars. No, it's four bars four bars mike what is it he goes it's two bars i go it's two bars trust me because <laughs> he always knows that stuff so he's a huge asset in that respect and playing with him uh the bass drum is my main focus the pattern he's playing on that i play notes to that pattern and then there's also frosting to go on that cake as well but it's an interesting dynamic between bass and drums so we lay down a big thick 18 inches of structural concrete foundation for guitars and vocals and that makes them feel easy they got this giant thing underneath them holding things together. So they start to relax a little better and perform better. So that's kind of what our job is. And in a three-piece, unlike a four, five, six, however many-piece rock band, the pressure of lead guitar and vocals normally doesn't fall on the same guy. And so for Richie, while you've got this backbone of the band with Mike, because you're singing and, and playing bass, You've also got to have your other eye on Richie because he's driving everything forward. There's no room for error with just three of you. It's true. And a lot of times, Richie, uh, because I can, I'm used to being in a three-piece band and, and making up for the lack of keyboard or rhythm guitarist on some extra bass things. So some things, it'll just be bass and drums and Richie's singing over it. You know, so he can lay back a little bit and just concentrate fully on his voice, which has been just amazing on this record uh i i just what a what a performance he he gave on this record really great so uh yeah uh, and having three guys it's easier for me to watch two than to watch three or four guys on stage so i've always i mean i'm on stage right so i'm looking to my left to see richie and mike and i'm 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 always keep my eyes on we watch each other really closely so that interaction and communication happens in a live performance is just priceless we can one guy makes a move we know what exactly what to do where to go pull back push forward get out of his way back him up harmonize counterpoint all the things you can do with another musician three guys does make it easier when you and i sat down the first time you talked about that that amazing moment as a kid when you saw the Beatles on TV and that inspired you to want to become a musician. But when I talk to musicians, I, I always want to kind of find out 
the soundtrack to their childhood and the music that you got gifted with? Because my mom gifted me with a love of the Beatles, and that was something that completely shaped my life. So growing up, did you grow up in a musical household? And what what was gifted to you musically by your parents? Yeah, my mom was a big fan. She was a big Sinatra fan, Tony Bennett, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, the great singers. And vocals are really the key. We got uh, uh, the voice and America's, uh, uh, you know, and uh, the all the talent shows on uh, TV. It's usually always a singer. <laughs> that, that is, you don't see many bass players and drummers on those shows. So uh, vocals being so important and so essential, I was lucky to grow up with great vocalists around me. And then my mom was very accepting of a lot of the new music when it came out, the Beatles and stuff like that. She could recognize that it was good, uh, but she still had uh, her heart back there in her teenage years, which was Sinatra and Tony, Tony Bennett. So, uh, and then I had older brother and sisters who were all into music. So I, being a little kid, would hear music those couple of years ahead of what, what I normally would have heard. So the Everly Brothers, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, all the pre-Beatles Beach Boys, I got I got hit with the pre-Beatles. That was pretty cool because the youth culture was really starting. Then when the Beatles came out, all bets were off. <laughs> Everything changed and everybody went for the Beatles. So uh, and then that changed and shifted, but it was still Beatles centric in a lot of way as they progressed in their records, the White Album and Let It Be and things like that. They got more introspective on their music. It wasn't just you know, I want to hold your hand anymore. It was songs about life and the world. And we kind of, you know, a lot of people grew up with it in that same curve of, uh, of uh, understanding as you get older. So uh, for me, it was an unlimited amount of uh, inspiration from classical music, uh, the Beatles and the Stones, of course. My first concert was Jimi Hendrix. And because I saw Jimi at my first live rock show, that was a huge uh, influence on me to try to be, I wanted to be that. I wanted to be something like that, you know, and not necessarily guitar, but I wanted to be on stage. And Jimmy was cool. I would say he's the coolest human being ever. And uh, he was so cool. And he, he grabbed all of our attention. So uh, the influences were such a broad spectrum at that time. So you could be almost anything. I, I don't like to see now when people just listen to one kind of music. We and the radio stations because there was no internet. They play every. They play Joni Mitchell and then uh, Simon and Garfunkel and then some uh, uh, Cream and Beatles and then a classical piece and then a jazz thing. And everybody listened to everything and they loved it. You saw them by the the bands that would tour together. All these different bands. I saw uh, Mott the Hoople, the New York Dolls, and. Uh, Aerosmith together, all touring together. And now I don't know if the some of some fans of one band would be fans of another. But back then we were. We loved them all. It was so great. So uh, I, I'm lucky to to. I'm, I'm an old man, but I'm glad to have lived through all that. Did you start the musical tradition in your family, or are there actual musicians? Is it genetic, or is it learned? Your musical ability. I think it's learned. I had no musicians in the family. Uh, uh, I think it's learned. I never had any natural talent either. I didn't like pick up the guitar and hey, look at them go. I had to, I had to struggle through every note and figure out what does how does this work and I don't get it and uh, and I still do uh, a lot. I still work a lot on my playing and I'm still learning a lot. 
But uh, my dad was a recitationist, and then he would recite stories and poems as entertainment. And as a young man, he'd go to the pubs and uh, tell stories, and people would, you know, clap, and he'd, you know, pass the hat or something like that. But he was really good at entertaining. And to tell a story is very much like singing a song. A lot of songs are made up of a little story. And uh, so I learned a lot from him about how to keep people's interest and how to express something in a way that they would understand. So that was, uh, to some degree, entertainment. But no other musicians. I was the only one. And they had very little faith in me <laughs> until I finally started to see some uh, results. And then, and then they all got on board. What started first? Could you write lyrics first? Did you like write poems and stories as a kid? Was it the guitar first or did you sing first? Uh, I, my first session was actually drums and I brought my sister's acoustic guitar until I had a bass. So I learned the basis of chords and how to play songs in chords, which was really valuable. I always tell bass players, you got to learn chords. You got to learn guitar. You got to learn drums. You got to learn the it's best to know those instruments around you really well because you can communicate to the musicians that play those better. So I've always written and played guitar, but bass has been my specialty instrument. I can write on bass, but it's a little hard to sing and play bass and write. So if I'm just strumming, it's way easier. Uh, so, uh, yeah, a little. Uh, the first instrument I sat down with was drums, learned to play chords, and then. but a bass was my thing right away. I, but you couldn't get a bass that weren't as common. And there were, and uh, so it was hard to, if, if you were a bass player and had a bass, you could be in 10 bands because there were, there were no bass players. Everybody wanted to be a guitar player. So that was a good thing. So I got my bass instantly. I was out performing live and uh, as a bass player. How does the songwriting process work with the winery dogs? Is it anyone brings an idea to the table? Is it riff driven? Is it melody first? Is it a lyric? How does it start? All those ways. All those ways. Uh, a lot of people often think there's one way to write a song. There's a, there's as many ways to write a song as there are songs. There's went, all kinds of ways to approach it. I had a wonderful day I uh, spent with Holly Knight, a very famous, incredible songwriter. And uh, I was very happy to see that she writes down titles. There's no song. Just write down titles. Sounds like a title. Sounds like a song. Hear a single phrase or a couple of words that make a little a concise idea and then from that grows uh and then sing them in amongst some chords and suddenly lyrics and a story can build uh a lot of people think you have to add all your ducks in a row right away and get it all figured out and plan and go in and put your song together it can be just a couple little chords and a couple of blah blah a melody blah blah oh when i sing that melody it sounds like i'm saying uh whatever phrase so let's use that phrase okay now where does it build from there uh nashville is a great place for songwriters uh, of all styles. And uh, in, uh, I think a good song will work in almost any style as well. Uh, so uh, uh, songwriting for the Winery Dogs, we got together in a room and just tossed ideas around. Mike is playing a beat. I start playing a bass line to it. And that's how I think uh, Stars started. That little bass, bass beat. And Richie started singing on the top of it. Okay, where do we go for a chorus? Let's go here. And it just kind of happens. So let it happen. So I encourage songwriters to don't worry about the rules of songwriting or the methodology. Start writing stuff down. Start getting ideas. A little melody with some chords, a phrase. I have whole books that are just titles. 
Mr. Big Song, Addicted to That Rush, was a title for about 10 years. And we were fooling around and they, oh, wait, I got I got some lyrics <laughs> that'll work for that. How about that? Okay. Now, and then the song grew, Addicted to That Rush. Why? Well, I, I love it when when I feel that surge of love when I, you know, when you meet somebody new and uh, and you are get excited about them. Okay, bang! There's the there's the song. There's the story. Now fill in the words. So it's a, it's a, not as complicated as many people think, but there is certainly a real talent to proper great songwriting, and uh, those guys are generally few and far between, and very valuable. So I try to take as many cues from people like that. Uh, I had a wonderful uh, writing experience with Desmond Child, who wrote uh, "Living La Vida Loca" and uh, got a, a million other hits. And just watching them function and seeing how it, how it works together. It's uh, pretty fascinating. But, but I think anyone can do it if you apply yourself. Do you remember the first song you ever wrote? Yeah. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> it was a song called Magic Takes Work. <laughs> I still got recordings of it in the back. Uh, I think the, the chorus was... Uh, oh, I can't remember. But it was the idea that... There is magic, but you can't, it, ain't, it ain't easy. You gotta you gotta work at it to make it happen. And uh, we played it live about two or three times, and then abandoned it. And never be afraid to throw away songs. Just toss it away. Maybe later on you'll pull something away. But sometimes, for some records, I've I've written twenty or thirty songs, and then ten end up being recorded. Uh, so we're we're in this better. amazing time where there's a lot of great music coming out. And artists are coming out of this weird time in their lives where they weren't able to tour. The world was kind of shut down. And bands seem to have gone one of two ways with the process of working on new music. That they either wanted to reflect the crazy world that was happening around them or they wanted to be a distraction from it. Was that a conscious decision that you guys made on this record? No, we didn't even really discuss it. We tried to stay out of it because we're pummeled with it constantly at every turn. Uh, it's just insane, crazy news and catastrophes. And uh, it's it's a tough time for a lot of people mentally. Okay, So we did the song Mad World. We touched on it a little bit. But the message being, uh, we live in a mad world. We got to help each other. You know, that's, that's what the message there is. We got to take care of each other. So forget about all that stuff. Let's concentrate on each other, making our lives better and enjoy our, our lives together. Otherwise, most of it is all entertainment or introspection. Uh, I, I've always I've never been a, a political writer. Uh, I do try to do uh, stories and ideas that inspire and that reflect upon things that things people should know more about. But uh, we kind of we didn't really discuss any plan. Most most of the bands I work with. And it's funny when we do interviews in Japan. They always have this idea. Well, you well, you went in with a plan. Did this was your plan? Did it have, no, 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 no. There, there was never any plan. We were a rudderless ship on a windless sea, <laughs> going one way or the other. And we, uh, we, it just, it just happens. Uh, you know, if I do a bass solo, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I go up and uh, I start, and my hands feel this way, so I make a left turn, and they feel that way, and make a right turn, and that improvisational uh, spirit. I give a lot of that, of course, to uh, jazz, which was uh, uh, some of the underpinnings of the whole idea of that improvisation. But uh, it, it really is uh, liberating to be able to just fly. 
sometimes you run into trouble though. At the solo at the end of Mad World, we just had another like eight bars to fill in. I started to do a little bass solo, and I was just flying. I wasn't thinking of what I was doing, and uh, so I had to learn it for the tour. So I thought, oh, well, you know, since it's on the record, I want to play the solo the way I played it. It took me about three days to figure out what in the world I was doing because I, I was not thinking. And uh, finally did get it. Uh, I can't wait to play it live, but uh, but it was not easy at all. So that improvisational thing uh, where you're letting your just flying freely, it, it, it's a really valuable thing in, in, uh, in the arts, I believe, in general. When you go to any rock show, you now see these generations of rock fans where you're seeing a love of rock and roll gifted to to people's kids and grandkids sometimes and so for me when i go and look at a show it's like okay the the concept that rock might be dead is is a false concept because this love of this gift of rock music is being gifted down to these new generations. What's it like for you to look out in the crowd and see people that are only old enough to really know you from winery dogs and not know all of the other things that you've done in your career previously? That's interesting. And it really is great. And uh, because the, uh, the, the media that we see concentrates on one type of music and they don't concentrate on rock at all anymore, People who get the impression, oh, you know, rock, I don't know. Something. But you go to European festivals, there are hundreds of thousands of people who camp out for days. And then there are dozens of festivals. South America, out of control. You go down there with rock and with the audience to sing the solos. With the guitar solos, the audience sings the solo along with them. They know all the lyrics. They know everything about it. It's really a great time for rock in a lot of ways. It doesn't seem it because we don't see it there. But it is. we're sold out tonight here in Greensburg. Uh, already uh, a bunch of shows are already sold out on this first part of this run. And I imagine a lot of them will go, will go clean too. They'll go uh, be completely sold out. So um, seeing younger kids, I was, I was a kid. I was, uh, you know, seven or eight when I first heard, you know, the Everly brothers and started to fall in love with music and uh, it stays with me to this day. So I'd like to thank the parents of these kids for, bringing them up right and we see a lot of little kids playing guitar bass and drums that are unbelievable amazing you know i stood on the shoulders of many greats and that was a huge asset to me and a big help to me in my playing and so others that do that to me or guitarists like richie or c fire drummers like mike uh you know they're they're they they have a jump start because they're because we didn't have youtube or or uh you know we had to slow the record down to try to figure the notes out. <laughs> Even then, it was usually wrong. Uh, but they, it's all explained to them ex- explicitly now. So they can, their, their start, there is a jump start. And they can, they can uh, ascend very quickly with incredible skills. So some of the young players, wow, just inhuman. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable what they're doing. So I think we're going to see uh, music grow and evolve. And I do believe the the heart and soul of what we refer to as rock, that heavy impact, uh, that's going to continue on always. It'll always be there. These I younger believe. rock fans are now growing up hearing about like the craziness of the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, your time with David Lee Roth, like you were smack dab in the middle of that. And without YouTube and social media to kind of document it, which 
would totally change Thank the trajectory. Goodness. That's what I was going <laughs> to ask you. <laughs> yeah, we'd all be, uh, we'd all be, we'd all be in trouble. Think. No, but you know, we, in fact, no, it's not true with every band, but, and I'm not saying this to uh, for any self aggrandizement here, but we, we were always respectful. Uh, we, you know, we did our shenanigans, but it was never a disrespectful or a destructive thing. And in all the bands I've been in, there was not a drug thing going on. I mean, once in a while, one guy, a little thing, whatever. But there was no drug or alcohol problems in any of the bands I've been in. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad to say. So, and that's why all of them are mostly all, thank goodness, are have survived and done well. But uh, yeah, there were some amazing times. And I was right there with it. I mean, I saw everybody doing everything that was going on. I just didn't choose to partake in that part of it. Other aspects I did partake in. So, uh, but again, it was always a respectful thing. And uh, I, I, I don't like to see people think that it was complete uh, uh, chaos and uh, uh, just insanity. We had a riot. We, we had a blast. It was great. And, uh, uh, but uh, not everybody went off the deep end completely. So <laughs> You made it out of the 80s with almost no regrets, which is impressive. However... Do you see old photos of yourself and say, what the hell was I thinking when I put that outfit on? <laughs> I think everybody in every every genre and every era did. Yeah, we get, we get, of course, we get heat later on that we wore spandex back in the day. And my comeback is, yes, yeah, the NFL wears it today. <laughs> all the football players, that's all spandex. So, and they were stretchy. We were running around and it worked out all right. Yeah, but do you see wild. all the girls at the shows too? It didn't hurt you at all. <laughs> oh man, yeah, we, we it was a, it was a great time. Uh, fortunately, I didn't. Well, I had uh, a time in the early seventies, seventy three, seventy four, where I had the I post photos of it once in a while. If I want to get three thousand comments, I'll just post a picture of me in my six inch heel, four inch platform boots. Looking so skinny, my mother used to say I look like six o'clock. <laughs> she, she was uh, with her wisdom. And uh, it was during the, uh, I got the idea from Overend Watts, the bass player from Mata Hoopa. I saw him with those boots when I went to the show I mentioned earlier. And I in Toronto, there's a guy that made them. So I went up and I had a whole bunch made before Kiss. Kiss didn't even exist yet. And uh, so we, for a while, we had some, we'd walk into a club and people would, had no idea what just happened. It was pretty wild. I'll, I'll, I got to post some photos of that again sometime. And, uh, but uh, yeah, looking back, I'm glad I did that. It was a riot. It was cool. It was the Bowie era. It was the glam era. We had a riot. And then I went to a little bit more sensible uh, clothing. <laughs> I just talked to, I just talked to Chris Daughtry about that. And it's a good thing that they invented spandex because in the seventies, Especially for guys, it's we we theorized that was how the guys hit all those high notes because their jeans couldn't get any tighter. I don't know how anyone was able to move in the seventies because denim doesn't give. No, it does not. Yeah, you can't move. You don't see guys on a football field or an MMA wearing denim. It doesn't work. So yeah, it worked out great, and uh, and and there was became an athleticism to the shows too. I mean, on the Eat 'Em a Smile tour. Steve and I were running across a stage that was about, geez, about 50 yards back and forth and about 30 yards deep, giant. Both all those platforms and levels and we're running up and down stairs and flying back and forth with our wireless thing. I get over to the other side of the stage. I couldn't hear my bass at all. So I'd be, I'd be playing visually. I think this is the note I'm supposed to be on. 
and we would uh, end the show uh, hot and sweaty. It was a riot. What did you think about that story that he just got reunited with that Swiss cheese guitar that got stolen all those years ago and he just got it back? Uh, that's wonderful. Yeah, nothing worse than people stealing instruments. If you, if you, if you know of anyone that has something they shouldn't have, please let the artist know. And I know myself. I've told I've have a few instruments that are missing. I say to people, you know, I just want it back. I just want it back. I'm not, I'm, you're not in trouble, please. These mean a lot to us as musicians. There's not a lot of worth in them, really. Well, maybe Steve's guitar was because he's so famous, but uh, uh, but in, in fact, they mean a lot to us. And uh, for people to steal them, it's a it's like stealing a mechanic's tools. You know, these things we need, and they mean a lot to us. I'm glad he got it back. Not only do you need it, but for an instrument that gives you a song, to be able to have that instrument, but then you get to the point where you've written so many songs over a career, you've got a house full of instruments, <laughs> and then you have to Guilty decide, is, do you still keep all of yours, or have you been able to yeah. find a comfortable balance where you could get rid of some? Uh, it's pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of, I got, uh, in my man cave, I got a lot of walls and they're all full. So now there's racks of other guitars, but, uh, but they all mean something to me. Uh, you know, I, uh, so maybe some of the ones that don't mean as much, I may want to remove them for, and make some more room, whatever. But my original P bass that I started my musical life with, I still have it. It's still there. Wait, that still one, that's the one that is the nickname. Isn't she the girlfriend or something? Did you have a nickname for her? It's the wife. The wife. I knew it was something like that. <laughs> yeah, I post about her once in a while. About four or five guys around the world have made duplicates of her. And uh, the 30-year anniversary Yamaha bass was inspired by the sunburst finish and all the colors of that original instrument. Still have it. Still plays great. When I do my master classes in Nashville, I usually bring it with me because a lot of people want to see it and play it and take a photo with it. So I always bring it along. So, uh, yeah, they, they mean a lot to us players, uh, our instruments. We, sp we spend a lot of time with them and uh, we work a lot of things out. We go through a lot of emotion with them as well. It's great therapy to play music. You know, uh, the pandemic was tough for everybody. I'd get up, feed the cat, go down to my man cave and play for hours. It was it was just really comforting. And uh, uh and and the and the cat was already fed, so he didn't bother me. So well, I have to ask you about the cat because I never thought to ask what musicians name their animals until I talked to Geezer Butler, and he told me that he names all of his animals after gangster rappers. And now I'm fascinated by what you choose to name your animals. So, what's the cat's name? The cat is Rebel. Now, uh, we got the. I'll do it. I won't waste too much of your time, but um. We, we had a cat that I had for 19 years. She was 21 years old. And uh, when I met my wife and got married, and the first time my wife came to my house and sat down, the cat got on her instantly. So this cat meant so much to us. Little four-pound, little scrawny, a pissed-off old lady. Uh, and, but she was the sweetest thing. She just wanted to be on you and purring. And she was going downhill, downhill, downhill. On Thanksgiving night, we lost her about three years ago, three or four years ago maybe five years, sorry. And uh, we uh, we were devastated. And so my wife said, uh, could we just go look at a cat? You know, I thought, yeah, I know that's going to go. <laughs> so we went to the, we went to the orphanage. We're going to one. And it was, turns out it was, it was going to close too soon. So 
we turned around and went back the other way towards Franken and went, went to another orphanage, went into a room. There was cages of cats, a lower cage and an upper cage, and they were all black. It was like spooky. Our original cat was kind of guiding us. That sounds crazy, I know, but they were all black. And uh, so I leaned over, and there was one little guy, leaned over, put my hands on my knees, and he reached up and put his paw on my face. He chose you. Said, we have a winner. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Most of my cats have chosen me. Spooky did before uh, Rebel, and uh, Monkey did before they're all my black. I have four black cats. Quasi, Monkey, Spooky, and now Rebel. So we took him home, and he's the sweetest guy ever. So I, I remember saying to my wife, well, I don't know if I like the, the name Rebel. She thought he had a brother in the page, and it was Rebel and Sheriff, I think from Dukes of Hazard or something. I don't know. So we, we wanted to take the brother, but two cats sometimes is too much. So we took him home and we wanted to do a, I, I thought, well, we got to think of a name for you. He goes, no, no, I like Rebel. I said, oh, okay. So I wasn't too happy, but it turns out it was a perfect name for him. He Because it's, it's exactly what he is. He does things his way, the only way. You cannot call him. Hey, kitty, kitty, kitty. N- nothing, nothing, nothing. He'll show up maybe a few minutes later and wonder what the noise was. But he is the sweetest, greatest little guy. And we, uh, we ache with love for him so much. So we didn't name him. But uh, Spooky was named because uh, she was uh, she would jump at everything. She was uh, just a nervous little girl. And uh, uh, Monkey was because he was a little monkey crawling around like a like a like a little spider monkey. But uh, Rebel is a, just a great cat. And we got him soon after we lost Spooky. So many times people comment they lost their cat or their dog, and I say my condolences. But there's a dog or a cat in an orphanage somewhere that doesn't have a home, and you got a home. If you have a cat, you already got your pan, you got your feeding station, you got all ready for a new guy to come in, and he fixed our broken hearts. He was just great. We love this cat so much. Everybody's animals got so spoiled because everybody was home for so long, and now you just <laughs> want to leave the house, and they get mad at you now. Yeah, he saw the suitcase and figured it out. I could see already it started to bum out. But he's we got him. He's a little tiny guy. He's 20 pounds now. Big, giant. He walks, we call him, we call him a big old bear. He walks like a bear now. He's, he's so great. We love him so much. You're going to be away from the cat a lot because not only is winery dogs out on the road, but before I let you go, fill me in on anything you can tell me about what's going on with Mr. Big, too, because you're going to be busy. Yeah, it's going to be a busy year. Uh, we're hoping to do some stuff with Mr. Big. There's no uh, solid plans yet. Uh, we've spoken to a gentleman who we think could be the right drummer because he's got a great voice. Every, no one has has figured it out online yet. People keep saying, uh, uh, Dean Castronovo, who's an amazing drummer and incredible singer. I love him completely. It's not him. It's not Greg Bissonnette. It's not Mike Portnoy. Uh, but we, he has some other uh, obligations right now. We can't uh, uh, announce his name. As soon as we can, we will. And when he's free to, to have it be announced. Uh, so uh, we're hoping to do some shows. And uh, we want to pay tribute to our drummer, Pat Torby, who passed away. That's kind of the main reason. And also maybe say a really good final and real farewell and do a proper farewell tour and shows that will um, uh, just thank everyone for an incredible career as a band. And uh, so there's nothing nothing really booked yet and nothing really solidly set in stone. So that's, that's the plan. And as you know, the plans don't always come to be. A lot of people have jumped, jumped the gun and Wondering when we're going to get on a bus and tour all over the world for, for months and months and months. I don't think it'll be that extensive of a tour. 
but the dates will be announced well in advance and if people want to come to you know get to the city and see us play but we're going to do as much as we can and see how it goes uh and again i i i just don't know so much to 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 say uh uh with uh certainty uh how many shows or where so ho- hopefully we can do as much as possible i love playing with uh, eric and pat and the and the drummer, uh, the gentleman that's going to play drums is spectacular and sings great. Matt Starr did a great job for Mr. Big. He played drums when Pat couldn't play, and Pat was just singing on stage. And then we did some shows when after Pat passed away with Matt. He did a great job. But Matt's a tenor. Pat was an alto. We need that high note for that harmony. And uh, we, we are very grateful the amazing job that Matt did for us. Unfortunately, we, we, we really need that higher voice. Because when Pat was with him singing, we all had that. We had that traditional three-piece harmony behind the lead singer. But uh, we need a guy that can sing uh, in that pitch range. So we do have a guy. We'll be announcing him very soon. Well, rock fans are are loyal to a fault, so you you can't blame them for you know guessing and and pushing you guys toward. Because once a rock fan loves you, they love you forever, which is how. You get exactly. gifted these amazing long careers. And I think rock exactly is right. different than any other kind of music where once you find fans, you've got them for life. I agree. Yeah, I agree completely because I'm a fan and I'm a fan for life of all the bands I love. Everything I have, every my home, all my possessions, uh, every every thing of worth or value that I own comes from a fan buying a ticket, a t-shirt or a record. I never forget that ever. And, uh, I go, I don't know if too many people do much more than I, if I may say, uh, keeping in touch with fans on the internet and commenting and answering and responding. I remember doing clinics years ago before we had social media. Say, anybody in this room get an email for me? And half of the hands went up, you know, so I used to do it the old fashioned way by email. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. And, and uh, speculation has been entertaining. It's been funny. And uh, uh, like I said, uh, Dean is just a, what a, what a grandmaster he is. Uh, but I, I know he's busy with journey and couldn't do it, but we did find a guy and, uh, and I apologize for being evasive and not being able to announce it, but it's, it's, it's up to him to be, have the uh, business uh, freedom to make that announcement because he has other obligations. So uh, we're just about at that point. Uh, we'll, we'll, we will uh, let everyone know. Well, we look forward to finding out who it is. Great. Well, thank you so much for <laughs> hanging out with me today. Congratulations to on again. the record and tour. It was great to see you again. Thank you so much. Uh, maybe the next time there's a rock and pod thing, I'll see you there if not. If you ever need anything from me, get in touch, and I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. There he is, the one and only Billy Sheehan from the Winery Dogs. And since we sat down to record that episode, Mr. Big has announced the Big Finish Tour. The first leg of the tour is slated for Japan and Southeast Asia in July and August, with shows in South America, Europe, and the U.S. set to launch in early 2024. The band also announced taking over drumming responsibility of Mr. Big is longtime friend of the band, Nick DiVerglio. And if you want more information on Billy Sheehan and the Winery Dogs Tour, check the links in the show notes of this episode. You'll also find all of my links as well and the link to Billy's bonus episode from 2021. You'll also find the link to the corresponding playlist for this episode. I make a playlist for every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast 
that's filled with all of my guest music and all the music we referenced in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, share, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. It's all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment industry info boiled down to about five minutes. And you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. And now the Mistress Carrie podcast is available on YouTube. Get the details on all that and more at mistresscarry.com. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.